You're listening to 3CR Community Radio, 855 AM. 3CR would like to acknowledge the Kulin Nations, true owners, caretakers and custodians of the land from which we broadcast. 3CR pays respects to elders, past, present of the Kulin Nation. We recognise their unceded sovereignty. This is 3CR Breakfast. Alternative news, analysis and current affairs. Monday to Friday, 7am to 8.30am. Good morning. Um, you're listening to Tuesday Breakfast at 3CR. Today we're joined by Genevieve, Evie, Steph and Carnegie. Hi, Hi everyone. Morning. Morning. Good morning. Good. <laughs> it's a rainy morning. It's very gross outside, mm. yeah. A bit more difficult to get in now. Yeah, I was like going through rivers, it felt like, in my car <laughs> this morning. <laughs> like, yeah, really bad flooding um, around Melbourne. I, I really, like, hate crossing the road and there's, like, some car who thinks they're going to be funny and drive into the into the puddle right next to the footpath. It's like, just leave me yeah, alone. that's so <laughs> cruel. <laughs> Um, I just get scared that my car is just gonna like just flood. I don't know. <laughs> um, did anyone have an interesting weekend? Uh, I did. I, for fun and charity, I walked 35 kilometers yesterday. Wow. Um, not yesterday, it was Sunday. I've lost all track of time. <laughs> um, yeah, so for the Mitochondrial Foundation, there was uh, an event called the Bloody Long Walk. So a couple of my friends and I did that. Um, shout out to Amy and Jocelyn, who is, are definitely asleep and not listening to this right now. But um, we've been training for um, a couple of months just to work up to that. So yeah. it just goes from like around Mary Creek to the city. It was a yeah. lot of fun. What time did you have to start? Oh, like 6.30 in the morning. How, uh, how long does it take? To... Um, it took us about seven hours. Wow. Um, I've seen more of Docklands than I wish to ever see again because a lot of it is just sort of walking around the coast part there. So I've I've not seen all those developments before, so that was interesting. Is it more bustling? I mean, the last time I was there was like a few years ago. It seemed quite desolate. It's very desolate. Um, There's there's a lot of like houses and stuff being built there too. So Mm. it it was kind of interesting because I'd never seen that part before, but it also seems weirdly remote for Mm, something that's near the city. Yeah. Yeah. I feel like I am semi-obsessed with like Melbourne's port at the moment or like <laughs> melvin's like where they put all like the shipping containers oh, yeah. yeah and i guess like happy may the 4th may the 4th be with you sorry I just <laughs> <laughs> so was, and those things that pick up the crates look like those things of star wars so yeah it just reminds me of this there's a lot of that around near all the new housing developments it's yeah. fisherman's bend that's the word i was that's looking right. for so yeah. um so a lot of those new dwellings are just coming up now yeah um and it's very clearly like there's not enough sort of social things like mm-hmm. nothing more than like cafes and apartment buildings at the moment so yeah it's it's a strange place i hear there's going to be a 
primary school built there. Ah, okay. All these people moved in. Yeah. There's nowhere for anyone to go to school. Yeah, that makes oh. sense because it's 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 because it's the weird way in which it's laid out. It's very inaccessible to other parts of the city without just walking a lot. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, that's true. So it, it, they'd have to have a school nearby because, yeah, otherwise it'd be strange to have, like, no facilities there whatsoever. Yeah, definitely. Um, all right, well, I reckon we're going to go to a quick announcement and we'll be right back with the news headlines. The Rainbow Door is a free, culturally safe, specialist helpline for all LGBTIQA plus Victorians. The helpline provides information, support and referral from experienced peer workers on issues including mental health, family violence, relationships, suicide prevention and sexual assault. For information, support and referral, call the Rainbow Door on 1800 729 367. That's 1800 729 367, 10am to 6pm every day. Switchboard is a 3CR supporter. You're on Tuesday Breakfast. Uh, we're going to give you the news headlines for today. Um, we're going to quickly mention this just because Evie has um, a very exciting interview lined up later uh, in today's show. Yeah. Um, but obviously there's been a bit of backlash, well, significant backlash um, for the Morrison government with um, the controversial decision to criminalise returning... Um, to Australia from COVID, I guess, ravaged India. I'm getting these new t- news headlines, sorry, from The Guardian Australia. Um, and the coalition MPs characterising the move as extreme and heavy-handed. So I guess there's some contradiction and some conflict within the party as well. I'm sure all of you have been following this. Yeah, it, it's the first... I mean, so there's... The reason, the way in this the, this has come about is that the Biohazard Security Act allows sort of sweeping powers, and they've been used previously during the last year um, for border closures and that sort of thing. But this is the first time that they've actually prevented Australian nationals from coming back to Australia in mm. such a way. Um, they, um, Josh Frydenberg has basically threatened um, $66,000 fines or five years in prison if, you're, if you avoid the ways in which they've blocked coming back. Um, it's unconscionable. Every Australian should have a right to come back to their own country. Um, But, yes, I'll be talking about that with um, Gabriella D'Souza later this uh, show. Yeah. Um, In other news, something that I wanted to mention um, that I guess I've been a little bit involved with the Australian gymnastics community in the past, obviously, but um, in light of... Uh, some reviews that came out last week from um, the Human Rights Commission, which uh, labelled Australian gymnastics as a high-risk environment for abuse. Um, kind of reading this uh, article and this headline, I kind of thought, well, I mean, athletic, athletes in general, um, I think, cop a lot of unwarranted abuse. Um, gymnastics obviously being uh, predominantly a, a woman-dominated sport. I think it's particularly... Uh, prevalent, but the commission, it was uh, a human rights commission investigation that was commissioned by Gymnastics Australia in August 2020 after a serious, uh, a series of complaints, sorry, were made alleging mental and physical abuse of athletes. 
Um, some Olympians and Commonwealth Games medal winners were also among a group of gymnasts who used social media platforms last year to make allegations of abuse they suffered during their careers. Uh, the community and the sports culture has labelled it uh, toxic, um, where uh, I know that some young female athletes especially uh, have noted that, you know, there's a big focus on the ideal body and, like, uh, weight and um, a lot of harmful weight management and body shaming practices, um, you know, that can obviously lead to the development of eating disorders. Um, like, I think that 47 interviews with 57 participants, um, and this was including current and former athletes, their families, staff, coaches, and other relevant personnel uh, were in the review, and there were also 138 written submissions that kind of confirmed this. It's shocking. Yeah. It just makes me think about um, a couple of years ago how there was the Royal Commission into Institutional Abuse, and that was mostly focused on churches and boarding schools and um, care homes and that sort of thing, but it just goes to show how widespread institutional abuse is mm-hmm. and... I feel like, you know, if we can't learn lessons from a royal commission, how are we going to change these structures? Yeah. And obviously in light, we were talking a little bit before the show about the allegations that happened in the US and the US gymnastics team. Um, I think it was last year um, that one of the coaches uh, was allegedly abusing and... Um, NASA. Yeah. There was like sexual misconduct. Um, and so, I mean especially for young female athletes, um, where there's obviously, I mean, with any coach and athlete dynamic, there's a power dynamic, um, which kind of really perpetuates this abuse. Um, And, you know, I think maybe this goes for every athletic sport, but, like, I was uh, talking about as well, going through puberty is seen as very, like, bad like when you yeah when you um you know start to um become a woman I guess I hate to use that word but like it's seen as like a curse like you don't want to develop because it um impedes your athletic ability or you know yeah so (laughs) yeah and I mean I feel like every week we have a new um, sort of thing of, oh, there's sexual abuse allegations in this environment. Like, last week we talked about courts, and before that was parliament, and now it's gymnastics. Yeah. And it's just, you know, all the causes everywhere. are the same. Yeah. All the, all the results are the same. Mm. Um, it's almost like <laughs> the problem is society. Yeah. <laughs> and it's not just, uh, you know, select institutions, but, um, you know, abuse of power is, comes as no surprise in any environment. Yeah, definitely. And I guess that kind of, unfortunately, but leads us on to um, the next news headline that I just wanted to mention. Um, This uh, is coming out of Queensland, where a senior Queensland police officer says there's been a concerning increase in the number of police accused of domestic violence, something the organisation's leadership was grappling with how to respond to. Um, The Assistant Commissioner, uh, Brian Codd, uh, told the Australian uh, Guardian Australian last week that he could not offer a 100% guarantee that women seeking help would not encounter abusers in uniform or officers with problematic attitudes. Last year, there was 84 Queensland police named as a respondent to a domestic police, uh, sorry, domestic violence protection order. 
uh, obviously women's advocates say knowing that there are people uh, accused of domestic violence among police ranks contributes to a reluctance for women to seek assistance. Um, I think particularly for police officers that inflict domestic violence, um, it does perpetuate that whole thing of like, well, why would I ever go to the police mm, to um, yeah. seek any help? Yeah, this is the same police force that had, you know, an officer who disclosed a woman's yeah. uh, current address to her abuser, yeah. um, and specifically went into uh, a database to find that to disclose it to her abuser. So, uh, if you have people in the system who are willing to flaunt even the base level regulations, then you have to question what they're actually doing there. For sure. And I guess it's, um, I loosely draw this correlation between, you know, the police force and parliament. There is kind of a thing of like, we'll protect, you know, protect your boys, protect uh, Mm. the people, I guess, that you work with. And so there's very much a um, culture of silence in those kind of industries as well. All right. Well, I reckon go to a quick announcement and we'll be right back with a track. Smartphone Stories is a fun, free workshop for anyone in the community who would like to make a film using just their smartphone. We're coming to the city of Yarra at the Bagunga Nanyin North Fitzroy Library on Monday the 3rd and Monday the 10th of May. You can register for a place at www.smartphonestories.com. Proudly supported by VicHealth. A 3CR supporter. Alright, I'm going to play a song by one of my favourite uh artists from the 1970s, uh, Minnie Ripperton. Uh, this is a song that I think is a nice, easy way to ease your way into the morning. Um, it's titled, Baby This Love I Have. Things I say and do may not come clear through not convey just what I'm feeling, but I, I hope you recognize what's right before your eyes. Oh, your heart should realize from where I'm dealing. Baby, I'm trying to show you.
That was the late and great uh, Minnie Ripperton uh, with the song titled Baby This Love I Have. More than 70 innocent refugees are still being indefinitely detained in detention centres and secure hotels around Australia. Over recent months, many fellow detainees have been released onto bridging visas. Those remaining are desperate to know why they are still held. It is indefinite, it is cruel and it is unlawful. Every day a group of supporters protest this brutality outside the Park Hotel at 701 Swanson Street, Melbourne, where 11 men remain trapped and whose hopes are fading and whose mental health is declining. The aim of the protests is to raise awareness of the situation for the general public, but also to show support and solidarity to the men inside. It is also for the approximately 200 refugees still held offshore. Please come along any weeknight at 6pm or weekend at 3pm. This is 3CR. I think with keeping with our soul and funk theme for the morning, I'm going to play a song by Nina Simone. This song probably needs no introduction, um, but it's called Baltimore. On a marble stand Trying to find the ocean Looking everywhere
just playing over the top now is the incredible Nina Simone with the song Baltimore. In late October 2020, the women's AFL community suffered a terrible loss with the tragic death of 29-year-old Jacinda Barkley of the GWS Giants. Her family gave her a generous gift. Uh, She's the first contact sportswoman in Australia to have had her brain donated to the Australian Sports Bank in an attempt to understand the long-term impact of contact sports on the human brain. Joining us today is Stephanie Convery, who's the Deputy Culture Editor of Guardian Australia. She's written extensively about concussion research, and especially in the context of athletes who play contact sports. So we're joined by her today to talk about the impact of Jacinta's donation, especially on women's sport. Thank you so much for joining us, Stephanie. Thanks for having me. Uh, What drew you to writing and talking about brain injury and concussion in sports? Uh, I was boxing. Uh, a few years ago, I started boxing, and obviously boxing is a sport in which head injury is uh, ubiquitous. But I also started researching the death of a boxer, Daisy Brown, um, which actually required a lot of uh, deep research into concussion. One of the things that that was really significant about his death was that he was concussed very shortly before he was knocked out of a fight and um, died as a consequence of those brain injuries. So... It's uh, an issue that is really prevalent in combat sports, but it's also really important in contact sports, like football, um, the rugby codes, gridiron, that kind of thing. And that research in boxing led me to researching the effects of it in other sports as well. Yeah, it seems to be one of those things that's very verboten that a lot of um, athletes don't even like to talk about in itself. It's just... It's definitely something that is kind of, for a long time, it was the unspoken issue, you know. It, everybody knew that if you got a ding on the field, it was pretty bad. And, you know, I have heard stories even from amateur sportsmen of, uh, you know, getting knocked down and then kicking the goal in the wrong direction because they couldn't figure out which side their their team was, you know. Yeah. Um, it, it, it's, it's really actually quite terrifying. And the more you know about what what concussion even sub-concussive hits, so they're the, the bumps and the tackles and the the, um, the things that don't actually give you symptoms but still cause damage to the brain. About the, the short and the long-term impact of those things, the scarier it actually is. So can you tell us uh, about what findings were revealed this week regarding the study of Jacinda's brain? So Jacinda was found to have damage to her cerebral white matter. So you probably know there's People talk about the grey matter in the brain. The white matter is the kind of connectivity part. That's a very, very simplistic description. I'm not a neuroscientist <laughs> myself, but it is it's really it's really critical to um, passing messages through the brain. Um, now, what they didn't find was chronic traumatic encephalopathy. That is the neurodegenerative disease that we're hearing a lot about in contact sports. Um, recent uh, high-profile cases in Australia include um, Shane Tuck and Danny Frawley, who were found after death to have had very, very advanced stages of this disease. Um, we didn't find any of that in Jacinda's brain, but the fact that she had only had a very short contact sport playing career. So she played American football for a couple of years in the, like, 2013 to 2015, and then she played four years of AFL. Mm-hmm. So the, we know that, that chronic traumatic encephalopathy is is associated with concussions but more directly associated with a long-term contact sport playing career. Yeah. But she's already she already had damage to her brain from only a few years of playing, and that's the really scary thing. 
Yeah, that that sort of has to change our thinking about the effect of contact sports on any athlete, regardless of how much time they play. Absolutely. So one of the things that um, that we know about white matter damage is that you can see it in players who have never had a concussion before, do not sustain a concussion during a season, but have only played one season of contact sport. So there's research that's been done on American footballers as young as under the age of 14 that this study was done. None of them had had a concussion before. After one season, you could see changes in in the white matter in their brain. So we know that every single season of contact sport is doing you damage. How much and what the effects on, on you might be is still not clear, so we absolutely need more research to be done. But the other thing that we need more research in, and this is one of the reasons why Jacinda's brain donation to the Australian Sports Brain Bank was so significant, is that most of this research is not done on women. It's all done on men. So, I mean, we, we, we don't know how or if differences in men's and women's brains change their, the impact of concussion or head injury on them. I mean, personally, I, I bristle a little at the suggestion that um, men's and women's brains are fundamentally different. Mm, yeah. It sort of smacks of, like, what I used to hear in the boxing community of, like, oh, women, aren't, women aren't suited for, co- for combat sport or oh, yeah. contact sport, which, you know, there are a lot of problems with that. However, we absolutely need gender equity in the research. We need more people to donate their their brains to contact sport research, more women to do so. And just in the just in the family making the decision on her behalf to to kind of pioneer this in Australia is so important. And hopefully, it will be um, like when it, like her brother Zane said, a lighthouse for other people in the sport. Yeah, absolutely. Um, that was one thing I really liked about your feature articles. I think it was a really kind and sensitive tribute to Jacinda. Uh, she was obviously very accomplished. Uh, as you mentioned, she's, she played gridiron in America and in Australia as well, but she also played, um, baseball, I believe. And, you know, every, it seemed like every sport that she put her mind to, she was a very accomplished woman. Um, she struggled though as an elite athlete because she wasn't paid um, adequately as a professional due to the inequities in Australia. Um, and so even discussing something as like clinical as neuroscience, seeing athletes as people really helps everyone understand like the true cost of not protecting them, um, and their health. Because if they can't, you know, afford to live in their current profession, then how are they going to look after themselves after they're out of the game? That's absolutely right. And, I mean, Jacinda, when she was playing for Greater Western Sydney Giants in AFLW, she was earning $23,000 a year. Now, if she had been just a, an average player in, her, in the same team, but a man, she would have been earning a minimum of $110,000. You get more than $80,000 just for sitting on the bench in the AFL men's division. Like, it is the, the discrepancy between what men and women are paid in the sport in Australia is phenomenal. And it, it really did um, seem to contribute to her difficulties as an athlete. She, I mean, she, she was an incredibly talented athlete, but she had to work three jobs in order to stay afloat financially. And that meant that her training was curtailed. She was often missing um, pre-season in order to, to just to make money to live through the season. And, and that, that kind of thing meant that when it did come to when she did start finding herself being challenged by um, feelings of depression and similar kinds of things, she was wondering about that stuff. Now, we don't know exactly 
how much those things contributed to her feelings before her death. And it was, a, and she took her own life. It was a very, very tragic situation. Um, but we do know that she was struggling with that. And she did, she did speak about that to many of her friends and family in the months um, before she died. So it's really important as part of this discussion that we, that we talk about, part of this discussion about athletes' health and safety, that we're talking about them being able to financially support themselves so they can actually look after themselves properly. It's really important. Yeah, like a lot of the times um, when I read about AFLW players, they've always got three different careers on the go alongside football you know, there, there's lots of police officers, there's lots of fire, um, fire, fireies and paramedics and tradies. And it, it bears thinking about that, you know, especially to make any sort of living for themselves, that they have to put themselves through extremely physical jobs as well as their own endurance sport. Um, it seems like an unlivable situation. And we already think about, you know, players after football, you know, and after any sort of professional sport that they don't have any structure to their lives. So it's really important to giving giving them a meaningful life as well as protecting them. Yeah, I think there's a, that, that is a really interesting tension, isn't it? Because you see the, the days are long gone that an AFL, a, a, a player in the AFL men's division would have a career alongside their sporting career. Like, they, you know, they used to you know, being a construction worker or something, as well as being a footballer. That doesn't happen anymore, really. So you end up with these people who have spent their entire lives in a sport and then they get to 30 and their career's over, or even earlier sometimes, depending on, on whether they're top draft or a draft pick or whether they um, are injured or something. And then they suddenly don't have anything else in their life. And that is not good. At the same time, you have these women who have to work themselves to the bone just to, just to stay afloat while trying to be professional sports people. And it's just impossible. So where's the happy medium? I feel like it, surely we can, uh, surely we can organize this system so that yeah. people who are, <laughs> people who are professional sports people don't have to scrape for a living, but they also have other things in their lives that keep them balanced and don't make them feel like they are a failure the minute that they can no longer play the sport anymore. Absolutely. Do you think there's a, this is a watershed moment as well for other women in football that they want to contribute to the kind of studies um, that Jacinda's family has very kindly helped out with? I hope so. I think this research is so important, and I say that as somebody who plays football and who has played sports in which head injury is a very prominent feature. Um, you know, you can you can love a sport and also think that it's really important that we know how to best look after ourselves and what the damage might be and the, what the risks might be of playing that sport. Um, and I, I think, I mean, Jacinda Barclay has been a leader, a leader in almost all of the sports that she's participated in, and I hope that she will be seen as such in this in this regard as well, like contributing to the betterment of her sport and of the people who play it even after her death. Thanks so much, Stephanie, for chatting to us. Um, if you're listening, you can find Stephanie's reporting at The Guardian Australia. She's written quite a few articles about Jacinda Barkley in the last week. Um, you can also follow her Twitter on Ginger and Honey uh, and her book, After the Count, the Death of Davy Brown, um, which you spoke about a little bit here. It's available now in all good bookstores. I highly recommend it. Um, thank you so much, Stephanie. Thanks so much for having me.
Uh, just as a final note, um, if you have been troubled by anything that we've been talking about uh, in this last interview, crisis support services can be reached 24 hours a day uh, on Lifeline at 13 11 14. It's time to speak up, speak out and speak loud. From an idea born on a park bench outside Liberal Party headquarters where hundreds of women told their stories of sexual violence, introducing Feminist Fridays. Join our open speaking circle to tell your story any way you want. A poem, a speech or a dance. You can even yell it out in the direction of Parliament House because that's where we'll be, on the steps. Feminist Fridays, starting Friday the 30th of April at 12pm. Join us. It's time to unite, heal and take back our power. Feminist Fridays isn't just a protest. We are a non-hierarchical collective ready to destroy the patriarchy, starting with your voice. This event is taking place on stolen Wurundjeri land and voices of First Nations people are prioritised. Hosted by Loud, Angry and Not Sorry. A 3CR supporter. Coming up, we've got a song from Alice Skye. Originally from Western Victoria, Alice Skye is a Nam-based Wagaya and Wemba Wemba singer-songwriter. This is her song, Melbourne.
That was Melbourne by Alice Skye, which I think is a very appropriate interview uh, song for this next interview. Um, Queerways is a project that maps the queer history of Melbourne through user submissions. We're joined by Luciano from Queerways to discuss the project. Welcome to Tuesday Breakfast, Luciano. Good morning. Thank you for having me. It's great to have you. Um, so can you tell us a bit about the project and some of the aims of Queerways? Yeah, for sure. So Queerways is a collaborative community arts project by myself and Georgia Keats. We're supported by the Australian Queer Archive. So we're mapping sites significant to Melbourne's queer history, collecting historical data from the archives and asking our community to add their own sites of significance to our digital map. Um, and from this digital map, we'll be developing a series of illustrated augmented reality maps that bring Melbourne's queer history to life. So for the first time in our history, um, uh, the queer history of Melbourne will be made accessible through audio, visuals and writing, ensuring that diverse audiences can engage with Melbourne's queer history and learn about the often silent history of our city. And so, yeah, um, our aim is to um, start some discussion between... Um, uh, mature and younger parts of our community because there isn't often a crossover in a lot of spaces and particularly as queer venues close around Melbourne. Um, uh, we hope that there is a bit more of an exchange of knowledge and stories. Cool, it sounds very important. Um, how can people contribute? Uh, so the um, uh, listeners can contribute by jumping on to queerways.melbourne and completing our form. So um, you can contribute as many times as you want. All we require, require is an email, the location of your story and the story itself. Um, and once mapped, all of the stories become anonymous. Um, we don't collect any personal information. It just leads us to know who to reach out to within the LGBTQIA community so that we can represent the whole spectrum of queer experience. So all types of stories are welcome. Um, and I think there's a real beauty in the stories being everyday and sort of relatable. Um, I think everyone has, like, little memories scattered around our city that are um, sweet and sad and sexy or happy, um, and you kind of remember them when you physically pass by those locations. Um, and as insignificant as something feels, um, sometimes to us, I think it is significant because queer people are and always have been part of our city, having queer experiences around our city. Yeah, I definitely encourage people to go and um, have a look at the map. There's some great stories, like people going to a queer space for the first time and it kind of changing their life. Um, yeah, yeah, it's really cute looking at the community submissions particularly um, and seeing the similarity, um, no matter what decade something occurred in or the age that the person was in, yeah. Um, yeah, there's a lot of relatability between the stories. How far back do the stories go at the moment? Um, currently, the historical stories that we've collected with the archive, I think, go back to like 1901. Oh, no, 1856 is the oh. earliest story I think we have. Yeah. Um, uh, and the community submissions, I can't say from the top of my head, not everyone includes the date. But, yeah, um, yeah I would say uh, probably 
like 70s is the one that I can uh, is one of the earliest ones I can think of. Awesome. Um, I clicked on a few before the show, and there was one um, in Clifton Hill that was a club that launched the Bifocal Newsletter, which was um, yes. published by the Bisexual Awareness Melbourne Group in the mid 90s, which I thought was very cool. Um, and also places like bookshops in Carlton that, um, you know, were involved in a lot of activism. And one thing I thought was really interesting is how concentrated the um, markers on the map are around the inner city, kind of inner suburbs. But, you know, if you think of yeah. a lot of, like, yeah, queer definitely. communities I'm- now, they're displaced from those areas. Um, yeah. yeah, I definitely think um, like the queer community has sort of been pushed away from where we used to gather. Mm. Part of um, our motivation for the project was that we haven't really had the same ghettoized experience as somewhere like Sydney, where all of the queer things are on Oxford Street. Yeah. Our um, experience has been that queer history has been spread out in the rest of society and sort of underground mm-hmm. and only really temporary. So places were there for two or three years and then closed um, because of police pressure or societal pressure. Um, and so a big motivation for our project was also for those outside of the queer community to show that um, we've the queer community has always been there, has mm. been in all these places, and you might just not be aware that this was somewhere important once okay. and continues to be important to us. Yeah. Are there any highlights of the project for you so far? Um, I think my favourite thing during the historical research is reading about how brave queer people are. Like, mm. I think today we think we're the most liberated and most realised um, examples of queer people, but people were doing the same things in the past, just with much higher stakes. Yeah. Um, so, like, I really love the stories of Edward de Lacey Evans and Bill Edwards, who were possibly Australia's first documented transgender people. Mm-hmm. So, Edward was married to their partner at St. Francis Church near Melbourne Central um, in 1856, and they lived as Edward until they were admitted to Kew Asylum for an unrelated mm-hmm. mental health issue, and then their birth gender was revealed. Um, and they were forced to live the rest of their life as a woman. Um, Bill Edwards, by comparison, married his partner, um, Lucy Minahan, like a 100 years or so later, um, after Edward. Um, Their gender was also... um, Their birth gender was also discovered later on, but they were able to live the rest of their life as a man, as Bill. Um, Yeah, but I think that's so crazy when you have the perspective of like marriage equality mm. and how opposed to it the Catholic Church was and if you go back in history they actually officiated some of Australia's first queer marriages so yeah I think it's interesting when um, yeah uh, yeah they really were out there doing everything that we are doing mm. just um, yeah with such higher stakes and putting themselves in so much more danger totally um mm. How are you recording some of the stories? I know we discussed off air that you'd been impacted by COVID, so I'd love to know a bit more about how the project's coming together. 
So, uh, yeah, COVID unfortunately impacted a lot um, of our project. We hope to be a part of Midsummer Carnival Day. Um, we've had to adjust to be a fully digital project instead of just a part digital project. Um, we're recording all the stories in a digital queer map, which is viewable on our website so that people can explore and look at the different locations. Um, we're currently accessing a lot of digitized, digitized resources from the Australian Queer Archive. Mm-hmm. Um, and then obviously with the community submission, it's all taking place online. Um, uh, we hope that in the coming months when we have closed our community submission at the end of June, we'll hopefully be able to access the archive. So when we get to our illustration phase, we can really go through all of the imagery and posters, photography that the archive collects so that we can best represent the stories that we've collected in the map. Awesome. Um, I wonder, do you know if there's like similar projects going on in other places? Because it seems like such a kind of great initiative. Yeah, I, there are. Um, there's been a lot of different attempts globally to map different communities' um, queer history. Mm. So querying the map in, I think, Toronto, which has been expanded mm-hmm. um, to be global, um, with mm-hmm. one example by Lucas Lorichelle, and he was quite helpful or they were quite helpful when we um, reached out to them for advice when we converted our project to being a digital Mm -hmm. platform Um, and I think it is the Dutch um, queer archives have a similar project that maps the queer history of um, Amsterdam particularly. Awesome Um, and we'll wrap up shortly but when can we expect to see the exhibition? (laughs) Um, we're hoping to exhibit later um, in the year, hopefully cool. around September, October, um, at the Victorian Pride Centre. Awesome. Um, our motivation, uh, another part of our motivation for the project is that 2021 is like quite a significant year for the queer community. The 40th anniversary of the decriminalisation of homosexuality mm. for men in Victoria. Yeah. Also the opening of the Pride Centre, which will be like a new start um, a new chapter um, for our acceptance in Melbourne. Um, and so showing our maps there, we hope, will connect mature and young people through the stories and shared experiences so that moving forward there's a greater exchange of knowledge and communication between ages. Awesome. Sounds like you have a lot of work ahead of you, but it's very exciting. It is, but it's very fun to do it. Yeah, I can imagine. Um, Well, I'm definitely going to look at more of the stories um, today and I encourage our listeners to do so as well. Thanks so much for your time today. Thank you so much for having me. It's been great. Yes. Have a good day. You too. There's kind of a lot of... A lot of things that are coming up to the fore at the moment as well, particularly in terms of the way that we imagine, for example, essential work and also sort of essential community life or essential caregiving um, and how those how those function. If we think about sort of the way that queer family often takes very, very sort of different forms and very you know important and meaningful forms that often don't match the picture of normative, heteronormative family life, but how so many of the of the affordances or the restrictions or the kind of the, the government governmental sort of imagining of the way that we should live and what we need to live and what we need to survive really is shaped around heteronormativity. You know, it's around the family life in the suburb, as opposed to many, you know, single 
individuals who have shared queer family, both sexual and community connections that sustain them and that kind of give them give them life and give them give them sort of energy and comfort and safety and security and support. You're listening to 3CR Community Radio AM on digital and online. 3CR Radical Radio. You're listening to 3CR on Tuesday Breakfast. Uh, you're back with us again. Um, just wondering what everyone else has been up to this weekend. Uh, have we done anything fun that's not a 35-kilometre walk? <laughs> I did, actually. Yeah. I'm moving house, so I had a big pride queer house party. Oh, wonderful. Oh, that would be fantastic. It was, yeah. It's so nice to have, like, house parties and mm. nice big gatherings again. We're moving from a big house to a really small apartment, so it was nice to have a big send-off to the house. Yeah. Mm. Were there any costume highlights related to the theme? There were a few, yes. I had a um, friend who put together a costume that looked like um, the Janelle Monae <gasps> pink. Um, Amazing. But was actually inspired by Villanelle from Killing Eve. Oh, so it was like so a double good. whammy. Was it like a big pink coat? Huge fluffy pink. She made it from, um, wow. from ch- I think, kids' curtains. <laughs> Very impressive. Yeah. Oh, I I have wanted a pink coat because of Villanelle for like two years now, and it's just like it's one of those things of like if I put on this coat, I will be exactly like her. I will look like her. It's just like it's like one of those things where you're convinced a piece of clothing is going to change your entire life. Mm-hmm. Oh, that's fantastic. I also love that video as well of Janelle Monet. I know. That so video is awesome. <laughs> yeah. She can do no wrong. Um, I had such a boring weekend. That sounds so fun. <laughs> so boring. I was just studying, like, the whole time. I'm at that, like, time in the semester. But I feel like I'm just, like, exhausted of, like, talking about it. And people say... <laughs> Oh, what have you been doing? I'm like, oh, I'm just studying. studying. <laughs> <laughs> the exam's coming up. Um, we're in week nine, believe it or not, at the moment. So they are coming up. I um, don't have exams because I do a Bachelor of Arts, which is uh, amazing. <laughs> um, but, yeah, reaching that kind of crescendo point of assignments. Um, yeah. I um went to the aforementioned party as well, but also on Friday night I have this like disaster film club with friends where we watch a disaster movie um, <laughs> every couple of months and we watch Daylight, which is like a 96 film with Sylvester Stallone where they get stuck in a tunnel um, oh. from New York to New Jersey. It's quite good. I, like, I it's feel ridiculous. like I've seen that like 20 years yeah. ago or something, but yeah. I just remember that being really full on. Yeah. I love it. <laughs> um, it's worth a watch. Wow. So is the disaster theme like just like not very good movies or just kind like, of? Yeah. <laughs> okay. <It's> like, <laughs> sometimes they're good. Like we watch Demolition Man, which is okay. this like feminist, like kind of Sylvester Stallone again, mm-hmm. Wesley Snipes, um, Sandra Bullock. It's kind of like utopian, but like post-violence world, which yeah. said in 2028, which was quite good. Um, but then also we watch things like Anaconda, which oh, does not hold up. I love it. Um, <laughs> and Dante's Peak, that kind of thing. Yeah, yeah. Gosh, um, the 90s are really good for like really bad 
schlocky, over-the-top action yeah. movies. Just, yeah. like, CGI is really hitting its peak and they just <laughs> overuse it to the yeah. point that it just looks terrible. Was Anaconda, like, a big phenomenon here? It was really advertised heavily. I remember, like, being really excited to go see it at the movies mm. and even just as a young, like, as a kid knowing that it was really bad. Yeah. Mm. <laughs> Despite there being a big snake that's eating everyone, yeah. which is really the only thing you want. <laughs> Um, it's so funny though, like when you mentioned Dante's Peak, I just remember there being a time, uh, in the nineties and like early two thousands where whenever an action movie came out, sometimes there was just one that was exactly the same theme. So like Dante's Peak and there was like Volcano 2 (laughs) and Armageddon and Deep Mm. Impact. (sighs) Such a good time. Like I, I really want those kind of action movies to make a comeback again. Like, I'm not really a Marvel person, so no. it's always fun to see, like, the big, dumb movies yeah. coming back. Yeah, because I feel like we don't have blockbusters in the same way now. Like, mm-hmm. it's Marvel, and yeah. that's kind of it. That's it's, it. Yeah. yeah. They just dominate the whole blockbuster mm. movie scene. I think there's Mortal Kombat that's just come yeah. out. Oh. And King Kong vs. Godzilla. Oh, yeah. Yes! <laughs> oh, I want to see that so bad. I'm so excited to see that. Um, I also want to see um, Bob Odenkirk who's um, this wonderful, funny comedian, but he does, like, the action man thing um, in a movie called Nobody that's just come out. He's very handsome. Um, (laughs) But also it's just very odd to see him in an action role, and I'm very excited about Mm. that. (sighs) Yeah. All right. Well, I reckon before we go to a very exciting interview, um, in about five or so minutes, we're going to go to a quick announcement, maybe play a quick track, and we'll be right back. Have you ever had a diagnosis of breast cancer or a gynecological cancer? Would you like to support other women as they go through their own cancer experience? Counterpart is a community-based service located in Melbourne. They support women right across Victoria who have been diagnosed with breast or a gynecological cancer. Counterpart peer support volunteers have all had their own cancer experience. They provide a listening ear and emotional and practical support to other women affected by cancer. As a peer support volunteer, you'll receive six weeks training one day a week. The 2021 volunteer intake will begin training in August. Applications close on June 7. To apply or find out more, visit counterpart.org.au forward slash volunteer or call our resource centre on 1300 781 500. Counterpart, women supporting women with cancer. A 3CR supporter. I'm going to play um, a song by Ari Lennox, one of my favourite US-based artists. I feel like I've played this song before on the show, <laughs> maybe a few months ago, but I reckon it's such a great song. Um, it's titled Chicago Boy.
That was Ari Lennox with Chicago Boy. So earlier on the show, we were talking about um, the new uh, ban on uh, Australian residents coming back from COVID, um, what countries that have a high rate of COVID at the moment. Um, And last week, uh, as a response to the rising rates of COVID-19 in India, the federal government made that announcement, which was to not only ban any Australian citizen and permanent resident currently in India from returning home, but also threatening them with a penalty of up to $66,000 or five years in prison. Uh, These are under emergency powers invoked by the Biohazard Security Act, which are legally and technically allowable, but are still uh, contravening any sort of decency in bringing citizens back home. And Gabby D'Souza is a senior economist at the Committee for Economic Development of Australia, and she's experienced firsthand the effects of the government's policy decisions in restricting Australian residents returning home from overseas during the pandemic, and we're very lucky to be joined by her today. Thank you so much for joining us, Gabby. Thank you for having me. Um, So even a year on, it seems that a lot of the hypotheticals that some people have um, in the situations of Australians coming home, they're very overly simple. Like I see a lot of things of like people who have no idea saying, why don't you just book a flight home when they can't conceive of how hard the reality is? And um, you've had some experience with that. Yeah, I think unless you've been in a situation where you've had to book a flight in the last 12 to 15 months, um, I don't think it's... Um, yeah, I don't think many people realise just how difficult it is. Um, so I, I had to book a flight to India 
that was tough um, because I had to apply for an exemption. Uh, when, did, when did you have to book that flight to India? So my dad passed away in June last year and I tried, um, I tried to make it back for his funeral, um, but I couldn't um, because of exemptions that I had to apply for and the government just um, got on my exemption for over a week and I, I missed it. So I ended up going back um, three months later in September uh, on an Indian repatriation flight. So it's interesting that our government has so far been quite reluctant um, to have many repatriation sites. They've had a few mm-hmm. um, through air bubble arrangements with different countries. But, you know, a lot of other countries have managed it fine. Uh, Australia is a very rich country. I feel like I have to keep reminding that uh, <laughs> to people. Um, but, you know, we're a very, really rich country and a lot of other quite poorer countries have really put us to shame on this one. Um, India has been operating uh, Vande Bharat mission flights, their repatriation flights for like since March. Mm-hmm. Uh, last year, and I know from friends that um, you know even Colombia was um, was organizing repatriation flights. They just had planes going around picking up people from various parts of the world where they were stranded. Like it's it's it just kind of beggars belief that it took us so long to get our act together. Yeah, it's truly embarrassing. Uh, I've seen so many articles written by Australians overseas who are trying to come back home. And we'll put in here that it's actually very difficult to come back home if you are, um, if you do have a life overseas that you need to pack up and come back home. Uh, A lot of people have jobs that they need to wrap up. They have families. They need to, um, you know, pack up all their things to ship back home. So it is a large process. So they can't simply book a flight and abandon everything. Um, And Australia has been manifestly unhelpful in helping them get back home as Australian residents. Um, yeah, so just, sorry, sorry, go on. <laughs> no, no, that's all right. <laughs> you go on. Uh, I was just going to say, just to illustrate the point a little bit with how difficult it is to get back, um, you know, at, at, at the peak of uh, pre-COVID, our arrivals were about 2 million a month. Mm-hmm. Um, at the moment, we only have capacity for 25,000. So that's a real, in, yeah. That's a real indicator of just how much that has dropped. Like you see the charts of arrival numbers, and it's, it's just like it's. I haven't seen a, a chart that I can describe as falling off a cliff, um, but yeah, that one really, really does fall off a cliff. So we went from you know two mil, like one and a half million, to about um, twenty thousand at one point. So it's it's really quite difficult, and you know a lot of a lot of other countries have shut down. Um, commercial options, but one of the things that's really difficult with getting back into Australia is those caps. Mm. So we have, you know, 30 passengers a plane on the caps, and that's really, really difficult for most airlines to make that work. So a lot of airlines started just shutting down their business, or you know, we saw the situation where the only um, the only people they would allow on their flights are people who had booked business class tickets. Yeah, so, and that's prohibitively expensive for a lot of people. Like a family of four, you're looking at you know, $30,000 um, to come back. Yeah, it's 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 really crazy how expensive that gets. Even just a, a friend of mine who's currently in the U.S., again, he has a job there, he has a life there, he's lived there for, you know, almost a decade now, um, and wanting to come back home to visit his family, you know, his, his parents are um, much older. And he's looking, again, down the barrel of over $10,000, just to come back, and even then, there's no guarantee he'll be able to get back um, in any sort of meaningful way. Um, 
and yeah, like it's just prohibitive. It's it's something that you know the average Australian wouldn't be able to afford. And um, I understand that um, your uh, the way in which you came back, you were very lucky to have um, connections through a travel agency. Is that right? Yeah, so I, I really lucked out. Um, thank you, James. Um, <laughs> and I had a, a friend who happened to be a travel agent, and he just, um, you know, he, yeah, he's a great problem solver and a very creative person, and so managed to find me a really great route back. Um, but, you know, even even coming back, like, you had to make sure that your tests lined up just right because different and especially if you're country hopping which I had to do mm-hmm. um, try and get back so you had to make sure that your test was valid for 72 hours by the time you got to destination one so that and then you had to get another test to destination one so it was valid for your next destination like it's just oh, it's this kind of like I'm sure in a couple of years someone will make a board game out of it <laughs> won't be a board game. I'm sure it will be a lot less stressful than you know having to go through it uh, firsthand um, but, you know, and, like, I had to endure so many cancelled flights, like, so many flights that we booked and that weren't going ahead. Um, it was it was just horrible. Like, travelling is not what it used to be. It's not easy. It's really scary um, as well. Like, there's a lot of deserted airports. Like, it's, it really has a very eerie feeling to it. And, it's you know, it's not as leisurely as a lot of people think. It's not, like, it's just not what it used to be. Yeah. How many countries did you have to make your way through? To get back um, to Australia, two, two. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So was this via Dubai? Uh, via Colombo. Ah, oh, okay. That's right. But yeah. Colombo didn't allow Indian passengers, so I had to go to a third country. Yeah. Wow. Um, yeah. it's funny that you mentioned the board game because there is a board game called Pandemic, but I think after this year they're going to need to make some updates as to how people actually travel about. <laughs> um, yeah, I I actually appreciate you sharing your experiences because. Um, we do have a lot of sort of um, first-hand, um, you know, accounts from people who have had trouble getting back. But I feel like it's really important in this particular situation where it feels like the decisions have been led not from any sort of proper medical advice or any sort of um, way in which it is sensitive to Australian citizens citizens coming back home. Uh, so do you hope that sharing your experience will drive policy change and maybe some more public understanding and empathy of what people are going through? I hope so. Um, I noticed there's been a bit of back and forth between the government and the chief medical officer. Uh, you know, the chief medical officer came out and said it wasn't based on health advice and then the government released his health advice (laughs) and so like honestly this is just you know childish game playing at this point this is just absolute buck passing yeah and you know a lot of Australians are being really hard done by because of it um you know we really need our leaders to shape up and to make some hard decisions shutting down borders should be a hard decision the fact that we do it so easily really says something. Yeah, I think that's something I've really struggled with over the last year. And actually, it's kind of made me paranoid, even about interstate travelling, that governments, both the federal as well as state governments, being, seem very footloose about closing borders um, as quickly as they want to, with no like you know, empathetic considerations to the conditions in which people are. It's just hard not to see it as like a like a logical conclusion of policy that constantly seeks to single out and interrogate people about why they're there. And it's not just migrants. It's like now it's extended to Australian citizens. Like even like you mentioned this morning, um, 
or last night, sorry, on Twitter, that um, even the conscious language usage about calling them Indians when they're Australian citizens. Yeah, that was pretty disappointing. Um, that was a video on the Fairfax papers from Minister Tudge about um, about the situation in Howard Springs, and he kept referring to them as Indians. And I was just like, are you kidding? But, like, you know, for a lot of these people, Australia is the only passport they will hold. Um, mm. If you're an Indian citizen and you become Australian, you have to give up your Indian passport. You have to rescind it. And so it's pretty damning, I think, that they would use that language. Maybe, I mean, you know, maybe it was a slip-up, but, you know, the the minister should really walk it back if it was a slip-up and to come out and say it. Um, But, you know, I think it is indicative of some kind of othering. Uh, You know, we don't see people who are left overseas as our problem anymore. Yeah, I I do often, like, it, it, it is kind of a result of the language used to describe immigrants to Australia uh, over the last, you know, 20 to 30 years, arguably for, like, all of, you know, the colony's existence, but it's definitely um, the impact of recent policy by coalition governments and even just Labor governments as well of othering immigrants in this way in which even when they are Australian residents, they're not entirely seen as belonging here. Um, and of course, that feeds into the whole. Well, you know, if the, if Australia was so important to them, why didn't they come back? It's very frustrating to see. And even as someone like myself, I've been an Australian citizen for well over twenty years. Uh, like, I often wonder whether, you know, if I wanted to go back to India to visit my extended family, whether people would say, you know, uh, you wanted to go there. You know, you have to, uh, you know, just take it on the chin and wait to come back like everyone else. Yeah, I got a few of those messages. Uh, they went straight to the bin. <laughs> I'm so sorry about that. No, it's fine. It's, you know, I kind of, I think if you're looking at the situation and you're looking at the stories that you hear, these really sad stories, and your first response is, why don't you just get a flight back? Or you have, like, the least empathetic response to that situation. I kind of just pity you. Yeah, absolutely. Like, it's like, you know, content people don't send strangers angry messages. Yeah. Um, so what message would you have now for um, anyone, you know, who is considering the, like, the, the kind of policy that the, that the government is doing right now? Uh, what do you feel like is like, should be the solution to the current situation? Well, we, uh, you know, we've got the hotel quarantine system now um, very clearly that needs some kind of rethink. Mm-hmm. Um, it doesn't seem to be um, doing that well. I think there's the that to say that there's a one in hundred chance of um, some kind of breach in the hotel quarantine um, system, so that's that's pretty bad. Um, Purpose-built quarantine seems like a good idea, but you know, really, we need to we need to develop a lower risk. Uh, sorry, a higher risk threshold for this stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, there is if we want to try and become or go back to some kind of normality, um, there is a higher level of risk that we're just going to have to accept. Um, and, you know, whether that's allowing people to quarantine at home, whether that's possible, um, and, you know, just finding other other avenues to which they can quarantine in Australia. But, you know, at the moment, every time there's a new case in hotel quarantine, it seems like we just kind of panic. I mean, even last week we saw that the WA government hadn't vaccinated, hadn't fully vaccinated its frontline workers, which to me just seems kind of absurd that we're in this situation now. Oh, absolutely. Um, so, you know, just 
get the, get the vaccine rollout done, vaccinate, vaccinate your frontline workers and those who are going to come in direct contact with people who might have the virus, bolster um, hotel quarantine and, you know, build purpose-built quarantine and just we need to have a higher risk threshold and let people quarantine at home where that's possible. Yeah, absolutely. (laughs) (laughs) And even just like, you know, um, we've had a year to do this. There should be a smoother system in place to allow people to like come through to Australia with like, you know, testing and protection protocols. And all of that is enabled by even just as a start vaccinating people at airports um, as well as at quarantine as well. Yeah, yeah. And also, you know, vaccinating people in places where um, COVID is running rampant. So we should really be looking at trying to vaccinate people in India to try and protect them from what's going on. Yeah, uh, giving India um, access to the patent would be a great start as well. (laughs) That's a whole other thing. (laughs) Mm -hmm. Thank you so much, Gabby, for joining us. Um, You can follow Gabby on Twitter at Gabster0191, and you can also read her writing about this topic um, on Medium at Gabster0191.medium.com. Thanks very much again. Thank you. Bye. We've got a common enemy. The same government that locks up these refugees just behind us here at the Park Hotel is the same government that's going for our rights, trying to attack the very limited gains that casuals have, And so when union activists take up the cause of refugees amongst their fellow workers, it's not an act of charity. It's about building workers' united self-defence mechanism, understanding that we're all part of the same battle. Subscribe to 3CR in 2021. Feed Radical Radio. Subscribe today. Go to 3cr.org.au forward slash subscribe or call the station on 94198377. So we're just going to go to a track now by TK Meza, um, who is a Zimbabwean-born Australian singer and rapper, and the song is called Syrup. Big, sweet, sick, sir, sir, sir. Yeah. My bars like chocolate, silky, milky, smooth. Fuck with it. New world parliament. See, I end the argument before you even started it. Own it. Never just a part of it. Goddess like Artemis. Big boss, fucking big boss, crossing roads. Big rocks, talking big blocks, but you know. Used to be the kid that took the front of the bus. Now my tour bus got the Mars with a plus. Trust. Getting cheese is a must. Done with all the honey, sip the bees in the dust. Chip the paradigm with the Pentagon rhymes. I'm the Artemis Prime. If you order it's time, on time. Obvious, better now, never later is for all of us. I want it all, can't apologize. I'll take the cake and the kitchen knife. I just wanna be rich, thick, sweet, sick, sir, sir, sir. I just wanna get low, whoa, dope, sweet, sir, sir. Sir, I just wanna be big, big, big when I grow up. Lipstick sick with a glow up. Tryna be, I'ma be lyrically fit with the blow up. Double back flip with the co op. Queen Amazona, say a couple wishes, I'ma see you later. Homie wants a vest, but he can pay my ratio. Small body, he'll figure on the data. Small money thinker, I'ma never cater. And that's a T, Arizona. I'ma ride it with Nona. 
Jonah, on time, obvious, better now, never later, it's for all of us, I want it all, can't apologize, I'll take the cake and the kitchen knife, I just wanna be rich, thick, sweet, sick, sir, 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 I just wanna get low, whoa, dope, big, smoke, 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 I just wanna be rich, thick, Breakfast would like to thank our friends at Living Coco for their support of the program. Living Coco puts community first by respecting food sovereignty. Based in Braybrook, they create bean to bar chocolates, cacao tea, intentional drinking cacao, and cacao mass in bulk. A zero waste manufacturing space. Living Coco ethically sourced cacao from over 130 domestic village farms in Samoa. They are at livingcoco.com or on Facebook and Instagram. So that last track was Syrup by Tiki Meza. Uh, and just kind of touching again on the travel ban for Australian citizens in India, uh, I thought it was quite interesting that Andrew Bolt wrote an article condemning the government's decision. Uh, I had to double-check and make sure that it was definitely the same Andrew Bolt a couple of times. <laughs> uh, yeah, de- I, <laughs> I had a bit stop of Stop-cock is right once a, ti- once a day. <laughs> yeah. Um, I believe that the article, yeah, he wrote in the Herald Sun, uh, Bolt's, uh, this is coming from sbs.com.au, uh, Bolt claimed he hates, and this is a quote, people playing the race card, but he is ashamed of Australia, which is making it a crime for Indian Australians to come back home. And then he also uh, went on to say, to me, it stinks of racism to tell the 8,000 Indian Australians trying to come home that they must stay in India in what Western Australia's Premier admitted was the epicentre of death and destruction. I mean, yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Interesting. Very interesting. Yeah. Um, But I did want to also, um, for anybody who's listening and wants to help uh, grassroots fundraisers in India, there's a Google Doc that's been compiled uh, that you can go to at mutualaidindia.com. And if you're outside of India, just look for any organizations that have the letters FF next to them, and they're open to uh, donations from overseas. And this is a um, verified doc that's been uh, definitely not linked to any questionable organizations as far as we know. Yeah. So it's a, it's a good place to donate. Definitely, and we can pop that information on our website as well. We'll link um, it on the Twitter yeah. as well. Definitely. And I just wanted to mention, this is news 
coming fresh off the newsreel. <laughs> um, approximately 17 minutes ago, Scott Morrison appeared on Sunrise, uh, defending the Indian travel ban, uh, watering down the government's strong rhetoric uh, from across the weekend. Um, he said, I would ask them to be patient like everyone else, and I should stress it is a 14-day pause as I have said, but also if people have been in other places outside of India for 14 days, then they can return home at the moment. So he's pretty much saying this is a two-week pause, uh, pretty much watering it down by saying this is not a permanent pause. Um, and he related it to saying that this is not a four-month lockdown, as if pretty much like stop, you know, uh, kicking up a fuss. Um, and... He also added, we are seeking to do here, what we are seeking to do here is ensure that Australia doesn't get a third wave of COVID across the country. That is what we were trying to avoid here. I think the kind of lack of commitment on what comes next, like we've just been seeing that the whole time. You don't know, mm. yeah, what's coming next. It's like, well, if it's only for two weeks, then tell people what they can expect in two weeks' time. Yeah, um, that's yeah. so true in terms of, any sort of like reassurance being like oh well this yeah it will be two weeks like if melbourne's learn anything <laughs> um it won't be yeah. most of the cases um also penny wong um also came out with uh in defense of the india travel ban setting yeah the same accusation this is a quote from her the same accusation was made against me and I shut the borders to mainland China. We all know the wisdom of that decision. Um, it's not true to say that the infection rate is the same as the UK or US. The infection rate is the same. But the infection rate that matters is the infection rate of people who are coming in on the actual planes into our quarantine. That is much higher. Um, I wish the Labor Party would have a spine about standing up in terms of um, well, they won't. Um, they think it's a popular decision to restrict borders, but it's just really terrible to see that that kind of decision supported by the opposition as well. Why yeah. even have an opposition, honestly? Yeah. <laughs> well, yeah, exactly. Um, yeah, she added that uh, this is um, urgent and, you know, the pause is necessary to put Australia in a stronger position. And I think what, you know, we mentioned before is, Australia's had a lot of practice, you know, we've had just over a year of doing this now. Um, we know what to expect, like, the, we have seen other countries being ravaged by COVID, um, you know, it's not, it's quite, yeah, it's blatantly selective, this move. Um, all right, well, we might go over what was on the show. Um, Evie, do you want to start off uh, by saying who you talked, spoke to this morning? Yes, so um, earlier this morning I spoke to Stephanie Convery about uh, the impact of concussion studies in women's sport, especially new discoveries as well, uh, especially uh, in the context of uh, women who are professional athletes but have to have multiple careers. Uh, so there was a wide-ranging conversation. It was really great to speak to Stephanie. Cool, and I spoke to Luciano from Queerways, which is a Melbourne-based cartography project to capture Melbourne's queer history. Um, and then we had another interview from Evie. 
Yes. Um, I also had an interview with Gabby D'Souza talking about uh, the impact of the federal government's restrictions on uh, Australian citizens coming back from COVID-ravaged countries, especially India, and her own experiences with having to travel during the pandemic. Uh, and stay tuned because up next we've got Accent of Women, women, sorry, women, <laughs> <laughs> Accent of Women, um, uh, which is always such a great show. Um, and please keep it locked to 3CR. Earth Greetings have been making sustainable beautiful since 2003. Their 100% recycled cards, plastic-free stationery and earth-friendly gifts are made in Australia with the lightest possible planetary footprint. Shop online at earthgreetings.com.au or at one of over 500 stockists Australia-wide. Earth Greetings is a 3CR supporter. 